In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Tonight, in our Bible study, we'll study the second half of Psalm 69. This psalm actually is written by David the prophet, but it is also a prophetic psalm It speaks about the Messiah. In the first part of the psalm, David explains all the suffering that he went through, which actually represent the suffering of Christ. For example, verse 4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. So, for example, though I have stolen nothing, the Lord did not commit any sin. I still must restore it, but he paid the price of our sin on the cross. So, we'll start today from verse 22. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. At the thought of the intolerable inhumanity of his enemies, David can no longer restrain himself, and he called out to God for judgment to fall upon his enemies. But these verses, it's difficult to perceive that a righteous man like David pray such a prayer. Let their table become a snare, before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, etc. This actually made some commentator say, it's difficult to believe that such wishes proceeding from the mouth of the psalmist. That's why they said these verses were uttered by the psalmist enemies, the enemies of David, invoking destruction upon David and his companion. However, this verse and the three following verses, according to St. Augustine, they are prophecy written in such a way that seem as though Christ wishes evil for his enemies. That's what St. Augustine said. But actually, the Lord Jesus Christ never prayed against his enemies, but always for their sake. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing. So, how to understand these verses? These verses should be read in the future tense and considered as predictions rather than revengeful spirits. So in a prophetic way, David is saying what would happen to the enemies of Christ. So they are prophecies of what should be being delivered out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit inspired David 
to utter these words as prediction of what will happen in the future. So these are not the wishes of David or of Christ, but it is the Holy Spirit inspired David to write these verses to explain what will happen to them. That's why in Romans 11 verse 9 and 10, St. Paul actually quote these verses. He said, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So St. Paul understood these verses. These are prophecies about what will happen to the nation of Israel because he crucified Christ. So St. Paul quotes verses 22 and 23 and applied it to the perpetual hardness of the nation of Israel regarding the Messiah and the divine penalty imposed on them as consequence of the rejection of the Messiah. So the whole passage is a prayer that they might receive a proper recompense for what they had done. So what does it mean when he said in verse 22, let their table be a snare? What does it mean? Let their table become a snare before them. The word their table figuratively points to their prosperity, the abundance of all things. And a snare means unexpected danger. Danger rose suddenly upon them. So as if David's saying, let the recompense come suddenly upon them while they think themselves at peace, sitting at the table enjoying their dinner, so in a figurative way. So while they are at peace, when they are surrounded by all comforts and luxuries of life, let their penalty come suddenly upon them. And again, it was not uttered in a bitter spirit or that anything more is intended by it than the psalmist desired the justice might be done to all people. So he's asking for the justice of God. And actually, every chastisement which fell on the Jews corresponded to one of their outrages against Christ. For example, they rebelled against the Lord Jesus, said, we have no king except Caesar. What will happen to them? It was the harsh rule of Caesar's soldiers, whom they said he is our king, which drove them into rebellion, which was their destruction in year 70 AD. They betrayed Christ at the Passover. Also, it was at the Passover they were besieged. They gave him vinegar and gold. They suffered all the tortures of famine themselves. They cast Christ out of the city to crucify him outside Jerusalem. And they were cast out of their own city and scattered all over the world. 
let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Let their eyes be darkened metaphorically, let their understanding which they were partially blinded. Now he's saying, let it be wholly darkened. They give up to such judicial blindness that they could not discern the signs of the times that the Messiah must become. The Lord told them, you know, to discern the signs of the heaven. If it is red, you say tomorrow will be hot weather. If it's cloudy, you're going to say there is no, uh, rain. But you are not able to design the times and seasons. Although it is written in the Old Testament, in the prophecies, Daniel actually, Daniel the prophet, prophesied exactly on the year of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they could not see the evidence of the messianship of Jesus, even in the miracles he performed or in the prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in him. Let their loins shake continually. Loin also belong to the loin of mind and soul, as St. Peter said, Gird up the loin of your mind. First Peter 1.13 Gird up the loin, not the loin. Gird up the loin of your mind. First Peter 1.13 And the loins of the body are the seat of strength. So David is saying, Weaken their loins in which a man's strength lies. That they may not be able to rise up against their enemies. Take away their courage that they may not be able to see or choose their way and that they may not be able to walk in it. St. Augustine compares the attitude of the Jews and Christian towards the truth like the spies that Joshua sent to them to spy the promised land and they carried the grapes on pole. So, you know, these two spies, or, or these spies went first and came, they said, the land is good, but we cannot take it. And they scared the people. So he said, these spies, like the Jews, they go first, and counting themselves to have the preeminence, but not seeing the precious goods. For and even turning their back upon it. They said, we cannot take the promised land. While the Christian came behind, that's after the spies went, then the, the people were encouraged and went through the promised land and inherited. So the second group that went to the promised land, like the Christian, second coming behind after the Jews, sees and worship God. Before, Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. The psalmist prays that heaven's indignation might be poured out upon these persecutors 
that God's fierce anger would overtake them, that their habitation might be desolate. As we read in verse 25, let their dwelling place, their habitation, be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. So, it denotes the severity of God's wrath toward them and upon them, and that their destruction would be inevitable. To have God's wrath poured upon anyone something inconceivably dreadful. Actually, that was proclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ when he wept on Jerusalem. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD until today, they couldn't build it again. St. Peter actually, in his speech in Acts chapter 1, he quoted this verse and he said, For it is written in the book of Psalm, Let his habitation be desolate and let no one live in it. But he applied it to whom? To Judas Iscariot. And which was done when wrath came upon the Jews to the uttermost in the destruction of their city, as it is described by St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. So the Jews were forbidding Paul to speak to the Gentiles. That they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. That what happened in year 70 AD when their nation was destroyed, the temple were destroyed, and they were scattered all over the world. Verse 26, For they persecute the ones you have struck. So even when God actually disciplines somebody, they don't have compassion on this person, but they persecute the ones you, God, have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. So when God disciplines somebody, they actually don't show compassion. They don't actually support this person to repent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when there was sexual immorality in the city and St. Paul excommunicated one of the parishioners in the church, but St. Paul had compassion on him. He said, I wrote this letter with tears and with great grief, not laughing at them. So these wicked people of whom David speaks are so harsh that they even add to the suffering of those who suffer already under the chastening hand of the Lord. These persecutors delighted in speaking about the difficulty of those who were afflicted. They talk of the grief of those you have wounded. 
So they take delight in speaking about their grief. So instead of pitying one who is afflicted of God or showing compassion of him, they add to his sorrow by their own persecutions. Actually, this verse is a prophecy about Christ himself, who was not only smitten and scourged by men, but as we read in Isaiah, he was stricken and smitten of God. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4, he, Christ, was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. So, they actually, Christ, esteemed to be stricken and smitten by God. And instead of having compassion or pitying him, they persecuted him more and crucified him. Also in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6 and 7, And one will say to him, to Christ, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, These with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, said the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. So St. Augustine said, if a person is smitten by God, and they also persecute him, why it is considered a sin? What then was their sin, as St. Augustine? If they did but carry on, as it were God's work. So if God is stepping somebody and they are persecuting, so they did God's work. For example, St. Augustine says, Christ was delivered up by the Father and delivered up by himself. He said, for this hour I have come. He was delivered also by Judas and by the Jews. So what is the difference between these cases? St. Augustine answered, It is that the father and son acted out of love. The father did not spare his son, but he delivered him to death to save us, out of love. But Judas and the Jews from betrayal and the Jews from hate. So what happened to Christ was according to his pleasure and to the pleasure of the father to suffer, to be crucified, for the sake of the salvation of the world. But as for others, like Judas or the Jews, what they did was not for the sake of a good cause, salvation of the world, but because of their envy and grudges. They rejoiced over the details of the suffering of Christ, whom they esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, as we read in Isaiah. The Jews persecuted Christ unto death, which was the cause of their ruin and destruction, as St. Paul explained in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Instead of taking away 
their iniquities by forgiveness. The psalmist says in verse uh, 27, add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. So the psalmist is saying, give them up to their own vain mind and evil lusts. So the unbelievers who insist on their unbelief, they add sin to sin and punishment to punishment. The evil ones are so vile that the psalmists pray that God will simply let them alone as their iniquity multiplies. He trusts that in their rebellion, they would not be permitted to enter God's righteousness. That's why he said, let them not come into your righteousness. And the word iniquity sometimes signifies punishment, as we read in Genesis chapter 4, uh, verse 13, when Cain said, my iniquity is greater than what I can bear. So, iniquity means judgment here. So, it may mean here to punish them according to their deeds as their sins and iniquities require and to add punishment to their punishment. Add future and everlasting punishment to the earthly punishment. Here on earth, they were driven out of their country. The temple was uh, destroyed and add to this a future and everlasting punishment. Let them be punished with everlasting destruction. But St. Augustine has interpretation of this verse beautiful. He said, crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ on assumption that he is just a regular man, then the Jews committed an iniquity. Their iniquity was that they killed a just man, innocent man. But there was Another iniquity added, they crucified the Son of God. So not only they crucified just a righteous man, a just man, but they crucified the Son of God. So iniquity was added upon iniquity. The fact that he proclaimed himself and his person as the Son of God, and yet they persisted on opposing him, they added iniquity to their iniquity. The Lord Jesus Christ, even in the parable of the vineyard and vine dressers, we read, when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. So they knew he is the son of God, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. So they not only killing a righteous man, but they are killing the son of God and seize his inheritance. So they added iniquity above iniquity. Also in John chapter 9, the Lord said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. If you didn't know, you would not have sin. But now you say you see, you know, therefore your sin remains. The same meaning in John 15:22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin because he came and said, I am the son of God.
Let them be plotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So, in view of their disposition to disregard and contempt the will of God, because they went against the will of God and they disregarded the will of God and they persecuted the innocent, let their name be plotted out of the book of living, which means let them not be accounted among the righteous. Give them the punishment they deserve. The book of living or the book of life in which the names of the people are, are written, those will be saved and others are not. Some interpreter interpret this, let them not be numbered among the living people, let them be cut off. But St. Augustine has observation. Whether their names will be writ yeah, written in the book of life, then God omitted them, or they were not written at all in the book of life. Here is the answer. St. Augustine explained, For had they been sometime written therein, brethren, we must not so take it, as that God writes anyone in the book of life and blot him out. He said, definitely God did not write their, their names and then blot it out. He foreknew before the foundation of the world, those who were reign with his son in life everlasting. So the idea is not their names were written as if God doesn't know and then he plotted their name. So how can we understand this verse then? St. Augustine says, How then are these men blotted out of, the, of that book, wherein they were never written? If they were never written there, how they are their names blotted out? He said, This has been said according to their own hope. So they had hope that their names to be written, because they thought of themselves that they were written, their names were written. What is let them be blotted out from the book of life mean? Even to themselves, let it be evident that they were not there. So St. Augustine says, the meaning of this verse, let these people know clearly that their names are not there. And the rest of the verse are not be written with the righteous. Again, this is parallel to let them be plotted out of the book of the living, to show that the hidden meaning of being blotted out from the book of life is to have it made evident that their names were never written there at all. Verse 29, But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. David did not only pray for the downfall of his enemies, but he also asked God to rescue him from drowning in the mire of hateful men and to establish him up on high. So in contrast to the fate which his enemies deserve, the psalmist looks forward to his own deliverance. While complaining from those cruel enemies, the psalmist confesses that he is lowly, miserable, helpless on his own to confront them 
I am poor and sorrowful. I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. This verse can be applied for the Messiah too. The Messiah was poor in a literal sense, as it was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. This verse in general may signify the low estate of Christ in his humiliation, being in the form of a servant, humbled and obedient unto death, the death of the cross. He was poor in taking on himself our human nature, thus emptying himself of his glory. And he has the character of a sorrowful man. He was a man of sorrow, as we read in Isaiah, all his days. He's praying, let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. Set me up on high in the might of resurrection, in the glory of ascension. And since we are the body of Christ, he is the head and we are his body, then set me up on high, not in his own person alone, but lifting up with him the members of his holy body. Verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. So now we can see David moving to greater confidence. The psalmist vowed to praise and to magnify God for his deliverance. Confident of receiving the deliverance for which he has prayed, he anticipated by offering even thanksgiving. I will praise to the name of God with a song, because the name of God is to be praised. The Messiah actually sung the praise of God with his disciples after the Last Supper, a little before his death. This sincere praise honored God even more than any animal sacrifice. As he said, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This praise also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. So said, when we praise the Lord, when we give thanks to him, this will please the Lord more than any animal sacrifice more than ox or bull which has horns and hooves. Spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving are more acceptable than the most perfect animal sacrifice. We say this in Psalm 50. If you desire sacrifice, I would have given it. But the acceptable sacrifice is a broken and humble spirit. And the reference to and hooves suggest a mature, clean offering. But I want to say, David does not mean to minimize the requirement of the law regarding animal sacrifices, but he is emphasizing the importance of true, heartfelt devotion compared even to the very best of animal sacrifices. Verse 32, the humble shall see this and be glad and you who seek God your hearts shall live so what is this what the humble will see the humble shall see this and be glad and you who seek God your hearts shall live 
Meaning, the humble shall see how ready God is to hear the poor and distressed when they cry to him and to grant their petitions. So the trial of the psalmist would not be wasted. He would become a lesson to others who seek God and show them how their hearts shall live when we see how God delivered David in his journey several times from King Saul, from his son Absalom, from the council of Achitophel, etc. We, when we see this, actually we will rejoice because God is God of deliverance and will know that our hearts will live. St. Augustine says, let them believe and in hope be glad. Let them be more needy in order that they may deserve to be filled. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty, for they shall be filled. Seek the Lord, you needy, hunger you and thirst. Hunger you and thirst, for he is himself the living bread that came down from heaven. The humble shall see, see the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. The meek and humble followers of Christ are his disciples, who saw him risen from the dead. They saw him alive, to whom he showed himself 40 days after his resurrection. They saw his hand, his feet, his side, and the prince of nails and his spear in them. They saw him going up to heaven to be set on, the, on high at the right hand of God. And the humble believers now see him by faith. Verse 33, for the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. God hears the poor and he would not have heard them unless they were poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor means I, I recognize my poverty and I feel I need God in my life. He looks on sinners and loses them from the chains of their sins that the word the prisoner here mean and does not despise his prisoners. So those who are willing to be freed by God are his prisoners because they are held captive by the devil against their own will. All believers who submit themselves to his commandments, keeping them truly, are in another sense the prisoner of God. It may the prisoner may be taken of all men who are tied down to earth by their bodies, or may be taken of the fathers who waited in Hades for the coming of Christ to deliver them and take them to the paradise of joy. Verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. So all creation, all things above and all below is called to join and acquire to praise the Lord. Why? For the redemption of Zion. Verse 35, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. So heaven and earth are not big enough to give God the praise he is due. So heaven and earth 
and all the hosts in heaven and earth, angels in heaven, saints on earth, were created by him, therefore let heaven and earth praise him. Not only that, but the seas and everything that moves in them will also bring him praise. And the reason for this song of praise, for God will save Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the church of Christ, as it's often called in the scripture. God will save his people. He will protect and defend them. So this expresses the confident assurance of King David that God will not forsake his people. That they, the children of God, may dwell there and possess it. Who are they who will dwell in the cities of Judah but those who seek the Lord, the humble, the poor, the captives, the singers of praise, whether they are in heaven or in earth. They gather all together when they enjoy his salvation work to set out of them the new Zion, the holy church of God, as we read in Hebrew chapter 12 from verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, so Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, heaven, and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, the earth, to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood spring of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judas, that they, who are they, those who seek the Lord, may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendant of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. In spite of our suffering and despite the trials that come in our life, we know that we have our home in Zion, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the city of the living. Whatever might be the present troubles, David's faith was unwavering, his confidence unshaken in regard to the faithfulness of God. He knew that he and others who love his name will inherit the land and dwell in it. As he said, the descendant of his servant shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So the general feature of true people of God who enjoy dwelling with God or the dwelling of God among them is love. Those who love his name will inherit the land and dwell in it. They enjoy that together with their descendant who follow their lead and who partake of their faith. As the Lord said to the Jews when they told him, who are the children of Abraham? He told them, if you are the children of Abraham, do the works of Abraham. So here in verse 36, and the descendant of his servant shall inherit it. Who are the descendant? Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The descendant of, like, of Abraham, who follow their lead and who partake of their faith. 
that descendant of his servants is a reference to God's children, the seed of the kingdom. This concludes Psalm 69. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.